Good morning. Let us stand together, hear from God's word together as we begin our time. Isaiah 40 calls us to worship this morning. It says, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, if you belong to the maker of heaven and earth through faith in his son Jesus, then these promises are for you today. So bring your weary and faint hearts to the one who renews and increases your strength. And fathers, on this Lord's day, let us lead out in singing these truths and model for our children what it sounds like to believe them. Sing it out. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Thou burning sun with golden beam. Thou silver moon with softer gleam. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Every voice, sing it out. Let all things their creator bless and worship him in humbleness. Oh, praise him. to reign 
join to say, oh, Wonderful foretaste of what we will spend eternity doing, singing hallelujah, praise to our God who has defeated every sin. Amen? Amen. 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 Please be seated. Welcome to this gathering of Desert Springs Church. My name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the Minister of Theological Training here at DSC. And if you're visiting with us, we are so glad that you're here. You are so welcome. And if there's anything that we can do to help you, if there's any questions that we can answer for you about our church or about this Jesus that we praise and will keep on praising forever and ever, we want to be able to answer those questions. We'll have some pastors up here at the front after the service this morning, and you can come and talk to one of us. Or uh, you can email us. Our email is info at DSC abq.com and we'd be happy to talk to you whatever you need okay now church has been a busy week in the life of our family hasn't it we've wrapped up missions emphasis week this last week and it's my understanding that we reached our $15,000 goal to translate uh yeah that's right praise God to translate uh, a really helpful resource into a specific Arab dialect uh, where we have partners in North Africa. So thank you all for your support and your partnership in that. And just what a wonderful time that we had as a church to think about missions and God's impact around the world through his people sending us out to make disciples. At the same time, while we were doing that, uh, myself, Pastor Drew, and Pastor Ryan, we were in Nashville for the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention where, among lots of other things, we got to see 64 missionaries commissioned there sent out to the ends of the earth. Uh, A couple, two of whom were really good friends of mine that are going to Central Asia. So it's just been neat for me to be thinking about uh, God's work going all around the world, making disciples to the ends of the earth. And then, of course, today is Father's Day. Uh, Thank you to all your fathers, all you fathers. We're grateful for you. Pastor Ryan is going to lead us in a prayer for Father's Day uh, today. And in the midst of all of this other busy stuff that was going on this week, we got a new federal holiday. Yeah, um, Juneteenth, right? Juneteenth. I didn't know that that's how it worked, that they said, this is now a holiday. But I'm, but I'm so glad that it is, especially being a Texan and Juneteenth started in Texas. I'm glad that it has uh, spread to the whole country as it rightly should. Juneteenth is a really special day, and it's special that we would commemorate it once, just to commemorate it for the historical significance of this day, that um, so many years ago in 1865, on June 19th, the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation was, was made known and enforced in the farthest flung territory of the Confederacy, that uh, slaves that were still enslaved three years after they had been set free were finally set free. That message of their freedom was announced in Texas in 1865. And, and that is just a good thing. We celebrate the end of slavery in our country. But, but more than that, I think for me, 
Um, it has always been special because of the gospel implications of that. It's just a little picture of the gospel, isn't it? That we have been set free by Christ and his work on the cross. But until someone comes and announces that good news to us and applies it to us, we don't know. We don't know about the freedom that we have in Christ. And so there were these people that had been set free, but they didn't know it. And so somebody was sent to them to announce that message of freedom. That's what we celebrate at Juneteenth, and that's what we celebrate every Sunday morning. Amen? That we come and we announce this good news of our freedom in Christ. As we've been studying the book of Galatians, that we have been set free in Christ. And and we, we announce that here on Sunday morning, and then that's why we send out missionaries. To all of those people who have already been freed, but they haven't heard the message yet. And so see this time, church, this Sunday morning as one little celebration of our freedom in Christ that can impact the whole world. Amen? Let's pray to that end. God, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, the emancipation of slaves in our own country. And thank you for the emancipation of all of us from our enslavement to sin and to self-righteousness. Lord, thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And thank you for the people that brought that good news to us, our parents or missionaries or pastors or, or whoever it was. God, thank you for announcing that good news to us. And we pray that that good news would be proclaimed this morning from this place and that we would receive that good news. If there's anyone in here right now that is still enslaved to their sin, Lord, would you, would you help them have ears to hear the freedom that is theirs in Christ, and would you help them to believe that, Lord? And would you even use this time to, to send out missionaries to the ends of the earth? For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand now and sing and confess our need together. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need Oh, I need you Every hour I need you My one defense My righteousness Oh, God, how I need you Listen runs deep your grace is more where grace is found is where you are and where you are Lord I am free holiness is Christ
when temptation comes my way. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. When I cannot, when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and than all our sins and on the cross his grace was made tangible visceral in the blood that spilled to cover and pay for all of our sins let us praise let us praise the one who paid it all I hear the Savior say thy strength indeed is small Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. what we bring Just hate it. 
say amen. You can be seated. Well, in light of that Savior who paid it all, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for grace. We thank you for Jesus and his cross and resurrection, his ascension and his ongoing reign. On this Father's Day, Lord, we are freshly reminded that you are indeed our Heavenly Father. We thank you and praise you that you are our Father in Heaven. We thank you for your supreme and perfect love, your constant care for us, your provision, Lord, for all of our needs. Not all of our wants, but certainly all of our needs. Your purposes, Lord, to do us good with all of your heart. Lord, for your patience with us, for forgiveness. We thank you for adoption. We thank you as adopted sons and daughters in Christ for what you have given us and all that you are for us. And we ask that you'd help us to live in light of that adoption to live in light of you as our Father and Jesus as our brother. Lord, to live in light of this privilege and responsibility of being in the family of God. And we do thank you on this day, Lord, for our human fathers. We recognize that whatever good and whatever is beneficial to us that we've received over the years through our fathers, that is a gift from you, a gift from you, our Father, the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. Every good gift is from you, Lord. We thank you for our fathers. And yet we pray for those who are with us for whom a prayer of thanks for fathers is a rather painful reminder perhaps a painful reminder of fathers who were not very fatherly, who were not very present, or fathers that were taken from a family at an early age. Lord, we pray for your grace and comfort for those who would find Father's Day a difficult memory. And we do thank you, Lord, for the fathers in this church that do reflect even in a small way, reflect your fatherhood. We acknowledge the high calling that you have for every Christian husband and father. And so we pray for our fathers here today, Lord. We pray that you would be with them, and we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would help them, you would strengthen them, you you would grow them in your grace. We pray that you would bless their efforts, however small, Bless them, make them eternally fruitful. We pray, Lord, as fathers who, who fail, who know our own failures, we thank you that your grace is indeed greater than our sin. And we pray, Lord, that for all of us, Lord, that we would keep our eyes on you, our Father, and Christ, our brother, the author and finisher of our faith. 
We thank you for all this and pray in Jesus' strong and saving name. Amen. And let us stand and continue in prayer through song as we sing for the Spirit's help to show us Christ. Prepare our hearts, O God. Help us to
show us Christ. Show us your son this morning. Father, if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more? How much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Father, for those who do not know the experience of walking by the Spirit, Father, they are not Christians. Father, your word gives life. Give life today through the preaching of your gospel. And Father, for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are already walking by the Spirit, Father, I ask that they would experience more of his power, more of his life this morning as we look at your word in Galatians. We ask you for these things. In your son's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, this is your first time at Desert Springs. We've been walking through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And a couple weeks ago, Paul left us on a cliffhanger. Galatians 5.15, he warns us, after telling us that we should use our gospel freedom to love one another, he gives us a warning, a graphic warning of what would happen if we don't. Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Biting, devouring, consuming one another. And then the sermon ended. <laughs> Watch out for spiritual cannibalism. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> well, fortunately, the letter keeps going, and Paul is going to answer the lingering question in verse 15. How do we avoid spiritually consuming one another in this church? That's the specific question. But there's a bigger question he's going to get to. It's a bigger question. It's one of our biggest questions in life. How do we change? How do we change? We all need to. We all come here this morning with junk in our lives. How do we change? If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians 5, verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I think the main idea of our text this morning is super simple. Be who you are. Be who you are. Through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, be who you are. We're just going to break down that main idea this morning into two points. Point number one, who you are. In verses 16 through 24, Paul is going to remind us of our gospel identity. Through six identity statements, he's going to remind you who you are. And then after stacking up a pile of identity statements, he's going to tell you, now be that. You got all those identity statements? Now be that. That's where we're headed in verse 25 and 26. But let's start with identity statement number one. Identity statement number one. You already walk by the Spirit, and you can walk closer. Verse 16 is really the short answer to the tension in verse 15. And it's the thesis statement for our passage. How do you not consume one another? How do you change? Walk by the Spirit. But what in the world does that mean? Walk by the Spirit. What does that look like? I want to let you know on the front end, we are going to camp out here for a little while. It's going to take us some time in this first part of our passage. But I want to let you know that because I don't want you to get nervous. (laughs) After the first part, we're going to pick things up. So if you're like, we're going to have to cancel our Father's Day lunch reservations. Don't cancel them. We're going to get through it. But we want to take some time to figure out, what does this phrase, walk by the Spirit, mean? Or skipping down, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit, or to live by the Spirit, or keep in step with the Spirit? I think all of these phrases are describing one experience, but the question is, what's that one experience. I actually don't think it's that complicated. I think it's pretty straightforward. Paul clears things up for us in verse 17. To support his point in verse 16, he brings up the desires of the Spirit in verse 17. Walking by the Spirit and having the desires of the Spirit are linked. Do you guys see that? So we could rephrase verse 16 to say the more our desires are the desires of the Spirit, the less we'll need to satiate the desires of the flesh. But what are the desires of the Spirit? What are the desires of the Spirit? John helps us. You don't have to turn here, but John 16, 14 tells us, that the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. 
He's got other desires, but at the very core, his primary desire is to glorify Christ. And so at the very core, walking by the Spirit is glorifying Christ, delighting in Christ. Savoring the glory of Jesus is walking by the Spirit. J.I. Packer puts it this way. It is, it is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. Another author says it this way, the Spirit turns the recipe into actual taste. If you're walking by the Spirit, he's going to take you to the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel, and he's going to let you taste and see that he is good. And that's what changes you. That's what changes you. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You want to look like Jesus? Look at Jesus. Paul knew this. Paul knew the Galatians needed to change. And the only way they were going to change is they were going to have to look to the gospel. For them to change, they were going to need the power of the gospel to change. So what did Paul do? He built a gospel dam. Starting in chapter one, he has been filling up his letter with gospel truth after gospel truth. The reservoir has just gotten higher and higher and higher. Chapter after chapter, the glory of Christ in the gospel has just gotten higher and higher and higher. And then verse 16. The gospel floodgates open and they come rushing into our passage. That's what powers the Galatians' spiritual change. It was more than enough, more than enough power to allow them to change. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospel has more than enough power to change you this morning. We're going to break that down more practically in a minute, but I've got another question about walking by the Spirit. Is walking by the Spirit an all-or-nothing experience? Is Paul looking at the Galatians not walking by the Spirit and saying, start walking by the Spirit? Can Christians start walking by the Spirit one minute, stop the next, continue walking by the Spirit, stop? Some believers think that's the way things work. Starting, stopping, starting, stopping, walking by the Spirit. Paul says no. We're not going to read all these four chapters, but Romans 5 through 8 totally picks apart this view of start, stop, start, stop, walking by the Spirit. 
Paul tells the, the full Roman church, you're all in the Spirit. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. If you believe the gospel, you will walk by the Spirit. But walking can be a struggle, amen? Walking can be a struggle. Some days we're walking closer than other days, right? I like the way Andy Nacelli puts it. Being spirit-filled is not like turning on a light by flipping a toggle switch. It is like a dimmer switch that is always on. Sometimes the light is bright, and sometimes it is not so bright. That's comforting. That's comforting. The light's never going off. And it's also extremely motivating. The light will always be on, but how do we get that light brighter? I want that. I know you want that. I know you all want more of the Spirit's power. So how do we walk by the Spirit more faithfully? Turn back one page to chapter 3, verse 2. Paul asks, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? At, the con at your conversion, when you look to the gospel, you started walking by the Spirit. And this morning, when you trust the sufficiency and the goodness of Jesus in the gospel, you continue walking by the Spirit. And the more you do that, the more you look to Jesus in the gospel, the more you will walk by the Spirit. And this is really hard to do. This is hard to do. This is not let go and let God. This is really hard work. When you get turned down on another date, it's hard to look to Jesus right then, isn't it? When your spouse checks out emotionally, it's hard to remember that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. It's hard work. But hear this this morning. You're not meant to do that hard work alone. You're not and to do that hard work of looking to Jesus alone. When they built the Elephant Butte Dam a few hours south of here, at one point they had 3,500 workers on that project at one time. 3,500 workers. It wasn't a one-man job, and neither is your job to look to Jesus. Draw upon the encouragement and support of your brothers and sisters here in this fight to look to Jesus to defeat your sin. It's one practical application of how to do that. If you're a younger saint and you haven't been studying Jesus for a long time, find an older saint and ask them to read the Bible with you. 
This whole book is about Jesus. <laughs> Ask this older saint to read the Bible with you. Open up your life to them. Ask for prayer. And let that older saint fill up your heart with Jesus. An older saint, ask us to read the Bible with you too. We need it. We need your help. All right, we're about to get rolling here. Identity statement number two. You want what the Spirit wants. But verse 17, your flesh wants something else. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you're walking by the Spirit, there's going to be war. There's going to be spiritual turmoil inside of you. And that should give you hope. That should give you hope. It's a sign that you're a Christian. If there's no war going on inside of you, that means your sin is by itself. But if there's a fight, that means there's someone else in the ring. Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle says, do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. We are evidently no friends of Satan. Like the kings of this world, he wars not against his own subjects. The very fact that he assaults us should fill our minds with hope. I say again, let us take comfort. The child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. Do you know inward warfare? You may be known as a child of God. But if you don't know this warfare, it's a sign that you're not a Christian. Kids in the room, I'm thinking six, seven, eight, nine years old. I've got a question for you. How do you feel about your sin? How do you feel about your sin? Do you hate your sin? Or do you just feel bad about it? Hating something and feeling bad about something are two different things. I think you guys know this. I think you know these two different emotions. If you're setting the table for dinner and you break a plate, you're going to feel bad about that. But you're not going to hate that. And you shouldn't. It's just a plate. But if you're at the playground and you see a bully picking on your little sister, you're going to hate that. And you should. It's your little sister. When you sin, do you feel like you do when you break a plate or when you see a bully picking on your little sister? Do you just feel bad about it or do you hate your sin? If you don't hate your sin, it's a sign that you're not a Christian. But I want to remind you of something. Jesus offers to forgive you of that sin. That very sin, he offers to forgive you of that sin on the cross if you will trust him. 
If you will trust him to take care of your sin, he will take care of it and he will give you a relationship with him. And when you hear an offer like that, knowing that he's offering you that because he loves you, it will make you hate your sin if you're a Christian. Identity statement number three. You follow the spirit, not the law. Identity statement number three, you follow the spirit, not the law. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. We forget this, don't we? When we've been managing our sin with the law for so long, it's so hard not to go back to that old way of thinking, isn't it? It's so hard not to look back to the law when you're feeling spiritual turmoil and the bullets are flying. It's so hard not to look to the law to manage your sin. But if you're led by the Spirit, the Spirit is not looking in that direction. He's looking at Jesus. He's looking at Jesus. And when you're looking at Jesus, the Spirit is leading you through the tough work of sanctification. But how does that actually look? We've been talking about looking to Jesus, uh, walking by the Spirit, delighting in Jesus, but what does that actually look like when you're potty training your toddler and your patience game is just not super strong? Asking for a friend. As we move into verses 19 through 20, how do we remove the weeds of the flesh and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit? What do you think the Galatians did? How do you think the Galatians used the gospel to fight their sin? I think they tapped into the gospel power earlier in the letter. And we can do the same thing. Identity statement number four, you fight the works of the flesh. How? How do you fight sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality? You open up the floodgates of Galatians and you let it come rushing down into the works of the flesh. Galatians 4, 8 through 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Formerly, you were enslaved to pornography. Formerly, you were enslaved to watching appropriate movies for inappropriate reasons. Formerly. The gospel adds formally into our warfare vocabulary. Now, now you're known by God. Rather, he knows. You know him and he knows you. You're living for something bigger now and you're free to say no to sexual sin. You're free to say no to sexual impurity and sensuality. Even if that means keeping your phone in the kitchen. The gospel also frees us from religious sins, idolatry, and sorcery. And I'll just be honest, these sins are not part of my testimony. 
But I do know some of you, and I know that some of your stories include these sins, and I praise God that you are free from that. But if you're like me and you don't struggle with these things explicitly, we do look to counterfeit gods, don't we? We do go to Netflix to distract us from our pain. We do buy pets to give us peace. And if sorcery is trying to manipulate events to get what we want instead of trusting God's sovereign plan, well then the heart problem of sorcery is our problem too. Praying to God flippantly, asking for him, asking things from him like he's a genie in a bottle. I've done that. How do we weed those sins out? How do we weed out religious sins? Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you're an heir, you have everything. You have everything. God is your comforter in your pain. He is your peace when the budget is tight. If we're his sons, why would we twist his arm? He's already given us everything in Christ. We can trust him. The gospel answers relational sins too. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Galatians 2.14. When Peter was not in step with the gospel, how did Paul call him to keep in step with the Spirit. He gave him the gospel. He gave him Galatians 2, 16. Galatians 2, 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I wonder, how much of our relational problems stem from the, from the fact that we expect others to be justified by the law? We expect others to be justified by the law. I wonder how much of our relational problems stem from that false expectation that our brothers and sisters can justify themselves by works of the law. Every believer you see Every believer's sin you see has been washed in the blood of Jesus. So let's make sin in the church a springboard to thank God for justifying the church. Let's make sin in the church a springboard to thank God for justifying the church. And as we do that, do that let's watch the stranglehold of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy lose its grip. I love Robert Murray McShane's encouragement. For every look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. I wonder what would happen if we applied that to the church. For every Look, you take at your brother or sister's sin. If you took 10 looks at Christ. 
wonder what would happen here. And that goes for members struggling with alcohol. If you're struggling with substance abuse this morning, I want to let you know there's hope for you. There's gospel hope. Verse 21. Whether it's drunkenness or orgies, whether you're abusing alcohol at home or down the road with friends, alcohol does not rule you anymore. I want to let you know this church will not judge you. At least they should not judge you if you come to a brother or sister in Christ for help. We will not judge you because of Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You don't have to go through that downward spiral of secrecy and shame any longer. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord and to brothers and sisters in this church. Judgment has already happened. It's happened at the cross. If you're worried that you're struggling with a sin this morning, that's not on this list. If you're worried that you are the exception to having gospel change, look at the end of verse 21. Chapter 5, end of verse 21. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do such things. This is not an exhaustive list. Paul knows that. And he knows that you may think that you're the exception. You've got another sin that's not on this list and he, just, he wants to just encapsulate all the sins. So whatever your theoretical exhaustive list is, Paul wants to remind you that the gospel can go down that list and answer each one of those sins. You're not enslaved to those sins anymore. The gospel can weed out every work of the flesh, and it can produce every fruit of the Spirit. It's a weed killer and fertilizer at the same time. Two in one. Identity statement number five. You produce the fruit of the Spirit. And we could just open up the gospel floodgates of Galatians and do the same thing with the fruit of the Spirit. Gospel and love, gospel and joy, gospel and peace. We could just go down the list. Faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, self. We could just go through each one of these and show how the gospel connects with the fruit of the Spirit. We're not going to do that because I think it would be awesome if your first meeting with that older saint, you guys made these connections by yourself. Make those connections between the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit. So that's your homework. Make gospel connections between the fruit of the Spirit and what Christ has done for you. I do want to point out a few general things about the fruit of the Spirit before we move on. I want you to look at the end of verse 23. Against such things there is no law. That tricky little phrase, against such things there is no law. If you're having a hard time figuring out what that phrase means, I want you to do something. Take a breath. It's all right. Commentators don't know what that means either. <laughs> they, they, uh, they debate of what this means. It could be that the law doesn't have a problem with the fruit of the Spirit. 
kindness and the Ten Commandments are not in contradiction to each other. Could mean that. Could mean that no law can produce the kind of fruit that the Spirit can produce. Or could mean both. Paul may be, able, may be thinking about both of those things when he's writing to the Galatians. So we don't, need to be, we don't need to get hung up here. We can move on to the second thing I want you to look at. Verse 22. Verse 22, how it says, fruit, not fruits. Fruit singular, not fruits plural. The Spirit's work is multifaceted, love, joy, peace, but it's a singular work, which means that we can't grow in peace over here, but not faithfulness over here. If you're growing in joy, you're growing in gentleness. They're all connected. The third thing I want you to see is Paul didn't give a minimum quota of fruit that the Galatians needed to hit to be a Christian. He's just looking for fruit. Last week, Trent Hunter, our friend and guest preacher, talked about all of the plants that were in Chase's office. And I found it interesting and honestly just hilarious that he didn't talk about my plants, <laughs> which are right next to Chase's plants. We're one office over. I actually should say plant. I've got one struggling small plant. We all want spiritual lives that look like Chase's office. But don't be discouraged if your spiritual life looks like my office. <laughs> Christ delights in the least thing, which is a fruit of his own spirit. J.C. Ryle again. You see no beauty in any action that you do, but know now that Jesus can see some beauty in everything that you do from a conscientious desire to please him. His eye can discern excellence in the least thing which is a fruit of his own spirit. Dad's in the room. My guess is that you're looking back on this year and you feel like you just missed it again. You have this picture of the kind of dad that you are going to be this year. It's going to be different than last year. It's going to be a lot better this year. It just didn't happen. Christ. Christ's eye can discern excellence in the least thing, which is a fruit of his own spirit. He sees the love you have for your kids. He sees your faithfulness. Keep after it. And if you're worried that all the weeds in your life are going to overpower your small, struggling fruit, don't forget verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Identity statement number six. You are dead to sin. Desert Springs, when Jesus died, your sin died too. may not look like it, You've got weeds all over the place. And I do too. They're all dead. The gospel is a 100% effective weed killer. 
And through his life, death, and resurrection, Christ has killed all the works of the flesh in your life. At the root, they're dead. They may wilt tomorrow, or if they're real deep in the ground, they may stick around until heaven. But either way, they are all dead. Gospel change is certain because... Because you walk by the Spirit. You want what the Spirit wants. You follow the Spirit, not the law. You fight the works of the flesh. You produce the fruit of the Spirit. You are dead to sin. It's who you are. Now, point number two. Be that. Point number two. Now, be that. This is going to be super short. Verses 25 through 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If we live by the Spirit, if verses 16 through 24 are true of you, now be that. Keep in step with the Spirit. Move the dimmer switch way up. We've already been applying the gospel in the first point, working towards gospel change. But now Paul gets super specific. He revisits verse 15. The biting, devouring, and consuming one another in verse 15 are parallel to the conceit, provocation, and envy in verse 26. Do you see that? They're parallel to each other. He presents the problem in verse 15. And he calls for change in verse 16, or 26, I should say. And what's his plan? What's Paul's plan to empower that change? What has the power to produce gospel change? The gospel dam. So he takes everything that he's just done in 16 through 24, and he opens up those floodgates, and they produce the power the spiritual power to produce the gospel change in verses 25 through 26. When we're walking by the Spirit and soaking in the truth that God became a man to save us from our sins, how can we be conceited? How can we be proud? When we remember that our brothers and sisters at DSC want what the Spirit wants, how can we distance ourselves from them in pride? When we're following the Spirit, not the law, We're looking at Jesus, who does not get irritated when we can be so irritating. How can we provoke one another after knowing that? When we remember that we're not enslaved to envy, we can be thankful for the fruit of the Spirit in other members' lives. We can say no to conceit, provocation, and envy because those sins have been nailed to the cross. In the death of Jesus, they are dead. Gospel identity empowers gospel change. Which is super encouraging. But don't you think verse 26 is still a strange way to end this section of scripture? I mean, Galatians 5 is like the text on the Holy Spirit, and Paul ends talking about envy. Doesn't it seem strange to you? It did to me when I first read it. And then I read Jonathan Edwards' description of the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening, one of the greatest revivals in church history. When the dimmer switch was way up and the church was keeping in step with the Spirit. 
This is what he says. First thing to describe the great awakening. This is what Jonathan Edwards says. When once the Spirit of God began to be so wonderfully poured out in a general way through the town, people had soon done with their quarrels, backbitings, and intermeddling with other men's affairs. That sound like verse 26 to you? One of the greatest evidences of the Spirit's work in a church is how the church treats the church. And I praise God for how you love each other in this church, for how you treat each other. It's a sign that you're walking by the Spirit. So now let's love each other more. Through the gospel and by the power of the Spirit, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. It's not who we are. Let's pray. Father, one day, Father, one day soon, we are going to look up and see our Savior's face. And when we look up and see his face, we will be changed, perfectly changed. All the change that we want now will happen on that day. But Father, until that day, Father, I ask that our church would change now. That we would be able to know more of your spirit's power. We would be able to delight more in your son. That we would be able to know more of what it means to be adopted as your child. Father, produce that gospel change. Let us be who we are. In your son's name, amen. Let us stand and respond. To charge one another with this. To believe these truths. And to go out from this place living these truths. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amid the flood, a mortal else prevailing, for still our ancient foe does see to work us woe is crept and power our grave and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his evil if we if we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing Were not the right men on our side The men of God's own choosing Yes, it's him You ask who that may be Christ Jesus, it is he The Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same And he must win the battle Hallelujah Hallelujah Hallelujah
to bring us down and we don't have to be afraid one little word shall fail him hear this word hear this prayer that Jesus has already prayed for us do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that's us that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. We're already one. Now let's be more one. You guys are dismissed.